Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. And we're going to start reading Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God, in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbour, for we are all members of one body. In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Rebecca, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Half term, over the half term break uh, as a family we went skiing to the French Alps and now I have been skiing often enough and uh, had enough lessons over the years to be able to describe to you exactly what to do on the slopes even if you've never been. Uh, I could tell you how you need to keep your shoulders facing down the fall line, how to bend into the turns, how to lean down the mountain, what to do when it's a bit icy, being sure to dig in your edges, how to turn around moguls, those are the sort of big mounds that sort of build up. I can tell you how to ski. And as I describe it to you, you might even think I'm a pretty decent skier. But if you've been in the Alps last week and seen me ski, there might have been one or two moments when I looked like a fairly decent, reasonable skier. But let me tell you, there were many times when I made a complete hash of it, crossing my skis, catching my edges, leaning back, and of course, falling over. Now, the point is this. It is easy to talk skiing. It is very difficult to do it. And church is like that. If I describe the sort of church we might aspire to be, I reckon I could make it sound brilliant. Indeed, as we've been reading the first half of the book of Ephesians, looking at God's master plan, we've been given a magnificent, a mouth-watering picture of church, of people from diverse backgrounds and cultures being brought together under Christ in the unity of the gospel, of a community of people who love one another, who accept one another, who forgive one another, who embrace and support one another. It sounds brilliant. It is. It's what we want. But doing it, living it, that's quite another thing. Indeed, when we try to live it, we often fall and make a real hash of it. 
Graham Bynan writes, although church is easy to describe, it's not going to be quite so easy in practice. And that's because while we like the idea of church family, a church family that is loving and kind and forgiving, and we, be, we like the idea of being part of a people that are sacrificial in, in giving time and energy to be there for me when I'm struggling, while I like the idea of that, on the other hand, I don't always want to live like that myself because that will cost me. The German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it like this, the sacrifice of time and the setting aside of personal wants and desires and bearing with each other means that community is hard work. As a result, many people love the idea of community more than the experience of community. Now last week we saw how the book of Ephesians moved us from talking about what church is, from describing the church, if you will, now to living it out, putting it into practice. And last week, we saw that's not easy. Do you remember last week, chapter four and verse three? Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. It's going to take effort. It's not gonna come naturally to be in unity. Anyone who's been around any group of people for any length of time knows that verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2, is very hard to live. It is extremely difficult to be humble and gentle and patient with others. So it's going to be very hard because we are a bunch of sinful failures who get it wrong. It is going to be very hard, verse 2, to bear with one another in love. Indeed, it is not something that we can do on our own, which is why Paul, at the end of chapter 3, prayed as he did in verses 14 to 19. Ben has already started the service by praying part of that prayer. Now, look, I reckon that prayer at the end of chapter 3 is absolutely crucial for us if these studies in Ephesians are going to change us as a church family. If we're going to live the kind of life we ought to live in this church family, if we're going to become the the loving church family that we should be, then we need the mighty power of the Spirit of God to be at work among us. We need the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through us to change our hearts and enable us to live as we should. And so before we look at the next section of Ephesians tonight, can I ask you to be sure to be praying this great prayer at the end of chapter three? Will you pray it regularly for yourself and for this whole church family? Will you pray this prayer so that the Holy Spirit would do his work in us, empowering us to live as we should, overwhelming us with a grasp of the full scope and extent of God's love for us in Christ Jesus, so that God's love melts our hearts and changes us profoundly in the very depth of our being? In short, I'm saying as we look at this next section from chapter 4, verse 17, we can only live it out if the Holy Spirit completely changes and transforms us as a church family. And so I'm going to pray this prayer for us right now before we look at the next section. Let's uh, pray together. Chapter 3 and verse 16. Our Father, we pray that out of your glorious riches you may strengthen us with power through your spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And we pray that you, that we, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints, all the Christians, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Amen.
Well, we've prayed. Now we must live it out. That's how Paul begins this section. Look at chapter 4 and verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. This is strong language. Do you see it there, 17? I insist on it in the Lord. Uh, Since chapter one, we've been hearing about God's master plan to bring everything together under the rule of Christ, uh, of God's plan to create a new community, which we need to be here, a family of believers that are united in love. That's his great master plan. Now, God, as we've seen, is the head of that master plan. So here in verse 17, Paul says, don't push against him. Don't resist him, but work with him in creating this new community. Verse 17, I insist on it in the Lord that you live this way, that you live this out. In short, in this next section, Paul is going to tell us to change from how we used to live before we were Christians and to live completely different lives. Just look with me at chapter 4, verses 22 to 25, just over the page. I reckon these perfectly sum up this section. If there's only three verses you need to remember, remember these three verses, 22 to 25. Well, it's four verses. Uh, Verse 22. You were taught, this is when you became a Christian, when you became Christian, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. See, he's been talking about putting off the life you used to live and putting on a new life. That's what this section of Ephesians is all about. It's about putting off and putting on. Putting off and putting on. And so we begin our first point, if you are taking notes, put off your old self, verses 17 to 19. Uh, Back over the page again, verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. You see, it is obvious really, as those who are in Christ, we should live differently. As God's community, we should be different from the world. And I reckon everyone knows that. Unbelievers certainly know this, don't they? They know that Christians should live differently. When I used to work in the newspaper industry, with all the pressures of sales figures and deadlines to hit, uh, my colleagues and I saw us as we really were. We couldn't put on airs and graces. There was too much pressure. Now, I made it very clear to everyone that I was a Christian, but in a highly demanding and pressurised situation, I know I didn't always live the way I should. I could be impatient and irritable and say things that were less than kind in that very high pressurised situation. And on more than one occasion, when I blew it, my colleagues looked at me and said, and you call yourself a Christian. The point is, unbelievers know we should live differently. And we know it too. We expect more from the church family. Christians find it very painful when other Christians don't treat them as they should. It's one of the hardest things I find about my job. I expect to get a hard time from outsiders, from unbelievers, from those outside the church. But when Christians are harsh and angry and mean and unforgiving and lacking in love, that is really tough. I don't expect that from Christians. We expect a different way of life in the church family. Of course we do. And Paul here is insisting that we live differently. And we see it here that living differently begins with the way we think. It begins in the mind. If I can put it this way, it begins upstairs. 
Look at the end of verse 17. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. In verse 18, Paul describes unbelievers as darkened in their understanding. And in verse 18, he speaks of unbelievers as living in ignorance. All in the mind, you see. Because when I think wrong thoughts, I will live a wrong life. Uh, This week, the annual glitz and glamour of the the Oscars hit Hollywood and the rest of the world, it seems. Now, look, Hollywood is a very good example of what Paul is talking about here, or a very bad example, depending on how you want to think about it. Now, I've got to say that uh, the films that Hollywood produces are often very thought-provoking, so I'm certainly not knocking all films. But through the film industry, in the work that they produce and in the way that people live in Tinseltown, there are also a whole host of messages that are extremely unhelpful that we are being fed all the time. The most obvious is the narrative that I'm going to find satisfaction and fulfilment in a perfect relationship with another person. And very often in a film, the most beautiful moment surrounding that relationship happens in the bedroom. And when we not watch enough of this stuff, we find our mind being persuaded by it. And so we can easily begin to find ourselves dissatisfied with the relationships we're in. My spouse doesn't fulfill me, doesn't meet my need in the bedroom. That's where real fulfillment comes from. I need to find a new mate. Now, you see, it's all started in my mind because somebody has told me something else that goes on in my head. And so now I'm wanting to live differently. That's an obvious example, but it happens in every area, in every aspect of life. I read this by John Piper this week. Before we become Christians, he writes, a hundred other things seem more important and more attractive than Jesus Christ. Health, family, job, friends, sports, music, food, sex, hobbies, retirement. But when God gives the radical change of the new birth and repentance, Jesus himself becomes our supreme treasure. Now that's what Paul is saying here in verses 17 to 19. When we're not Christians, when we're separated from the life of God, verse 18, we think differently about stuff. Indeed, we look to all sorts of other things other than God to give us what we're really looking for in life. So we chase after those things that we believe will give us satisfaction. The world is telling me to look for meaning and satisfaction in things that will never satisfy. And so as as unbelievers are, verse 18, darkened in their understanding, because, verse 18, they are separated from the life of God... They look to other things to become God for them. And we have to be careful of that because we're living in the world as well. So whether it's Hollywood or advertising or the media, all the time our minds are being told that other things other than God are where we will find satisfaction. And so as we look to those other things to satisfy us and we think that satisfaction is all about how we feel, So Paul writes of unbelievers, verse 19, having lost all sensitivity, that is all sensitivity to God, they have given themselves over to sensuality. See, it's all about how it feels, sensuality. And then when my senses aren't filled, I think the problem is that I haven't got enough of the things I want because I've been told that these things will satisfy me. So end of verse 19, I have a continual lust for more. 
Barry Humphreys, who uh, is probably better known to us as Dame Edna Everidge, that great Australian icon. Um, he called his autobiography More, Please. And uh, his autobiography begins like this. I always wanted more. I never had enough milk or money or socks or sex or holidays or first editions or solitude or gramophone records or free meals or real friends or guiltless pleasures or neckties or applause or unquestioning love. Of course, I had more than my fair share of most of these commodities, but it always left me with a vague feeling of unfulfillment. Where was the rest? More, please. That's the end of verse 19, a continual lust for more. Now, do you see, when you're separated from the life of God, you think wrong thoughts about what life is all about. It begins in the mind. And then you go looking for satisfaction in these other things. And your ferocious appetite for satisfaction demands that you try to get more and more and more of whatever it is you think will satisfy. It's not satisfying, I just haven't got enough of it. Or you look somewhere else and then you keep looking for more of that. Isn't that what much of Britain is about today? Getting more? And listen, isn't that so often what your life is about too, even as a believer? If it is, Paul says, you're living no differently from unbelievers. And so he says here in this section, put off your old self. That's how you used to live before you became a Christian. That's how you used to think. Put off your old self. And secondly, put on your new self, verses 20 to 24. Look at verse 20. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. You see his point? Everyone is striving after stuff, chasing after that elusive thing to discover what life is all about. But no one comes to Christ, the meaning of life, by striving for something. No, Jesus is revealed to us. Verse 21. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Verse 21, you came to know Christ through what you were taught. You came to know him through your mind being informed through the word of God. Again, notice this is all about the mind. This is where it starts. Verse 21, you were taught in him with the truth. Verse 22, you were taught. Verse 20, so verse 23, be made new in the attitude of your minds. This is a simple point, but it's so important. If we're going to live differently, it begins in the mind. It begins upstairs. That is actually how the Christian life began. God revealed the truth to you. If that's how the Christian life begins, it's how it continues, having your mind informed. So, verse 22, as you come to God's word, it will teach you to put off your old self. Verse 23, you'll be made new in your mind. And verse 24, you'll become more and more like God. Now, some years ago, a friend of mine told me about his uncle Walter. Uncle Walter wasn't a particularly well-educated man. But he was an extremely wise man. He was a faithful and godly Christian man. And my friend said to him, Uncle Walter, you're so wise. You've been so faithful to your wife and so dependable as a human being and as a man and a husband and a father. So solid and unwavering in living for Jesus Christ. What's the secret of that kind of life, Uncle Walter? Well, Uncle Walter was a humble man and he really didn't see himself like that. But he said to my friend, well... 
If anything you've said about me is true, let me tell you it's no secret. There's no magic formula. What makes the difference is I I read the Bible every day. That's it. And my friend asked him more, and it turns out that Uncle Walter was in the habit of reading a chapter of the book of Proverbs every day and had done for about 25 years. There are 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs, and he read one chapter for each day of the month, and then he began at the beginning again. I don't know what happens when there's only 28 days in the month, but he probably read a few extra chapters. On top of that, he read another part of the Bible each day as well. And the point is, a godly life begins upstairs. It doesn't stop here, but you can't bypass the mind if you're going to live God's way. So if we're going to be transformed into a faithful and loving community of God's people, we need to be people who daily turn to God's word to have our minds renewed and our attitudes changed. For every day we are bombarded by all sorts of messages that tell us something different. This was his point in verses 17 to 19. Every time we turn on the television and read our newspapers and go about our daily routines, we in, every time we interact with people, we are interacting with people who have completely different worldviews. Every day we are getting a whole bunch of messages that tell us what life is really all about. It's all going on into, in our heads. So we need to read the Bible to have our minds recalibrated. Why being part of a small group and making a priority to be at this gathering on a Sunday is so important. Here, right now, this moment now, is how we get our thinking straight for the days ahead. And once we've got our thinking straight, we have a fighting chance of living as we should. And that is what comes next. It is now, it is now about living it out. Finally, we've got there. But it's so important to do this thinking right first. Paul next tells us what we should put off and what we should put on. Verse 25, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully. Put on speaking truthfully to his neighbor, for we're all members of one body. Put off falsehood, speak truthfully. Until this week, whenever I read this, I always thought that Paul was telling the Christians in Ephesus to stop being liars. As if all the Christians in Ephesus went around telling each other porky pies every day. That's not it at all. I've never understood this until this week. I'm really excited about it. In telling us to put off falsehood, Paul is saying, put off any false talk about what the world is, is all about. You know, what, the world tells you what really satisfies, where you really find meaning in life, says the world. When you meet together, don't talk about those false things that the world is talking about. That's falsehood. Don't infuse about everything the world thinks is important. No, speak truthfully. Encourage one another to think right thoughts. When you're with Christian friends, speak to them of the truth, of the wonder of the gospel. Christian, when you meet me, keep speaking truth into my life. Because I keep hearing all the rubbish that the world's telling me that I'm going to find satisfaction in everything else. And I sit at my study when I should be studying the Bible, ready to prepare to to preach to you, thinking about all these other things and thinking how great they'd be. So please speak truth to me. Remind me that I'll find satisfaction in Christ alone. Tell me that there's more to life than than all the stuff of this life. Tell me there's more to life than playing tennis because I don't always believe that. And let's do this for one another because end of verse 25, we're all members of one body. We're one body. I have one body. It's all connected. It's all one. It's not the best body in the world, but it's the only one I've got. So I'd do well to look after it. 
And I look after my body by speaking truth to it. So I tell my body to eat good stuff and not just to fill my face with junk food and chocolate. I do love eating chocolate, especially at Lent. I do like eating more chocolate at Lent. That's another thing altogether. (laughs) I tell my body that it's good for me to exercise and I I have to keep telling my body that, that truth because it's so easy to think that lazing around watching sport is a good way to spend my day. I tell my body to go to bed because I know that if I get enough sleep, I'll function better the next day and not be so grumpy. I do mean not be so grumpy. I know I'm still grumpy. Sorry, Bethan. When we were skiing last week, I had, to speak, I had to speak truth to my body then. There were huge jumps that I could go over. Joshua was loving going over them. And he was saying, come on, Daddy. And, and the adrenaline in my body was telling me to go over those jumps, telling me that it would be fun and that I wouldn't hurt myself. I had to speak truth to my body. I had to tell myself that I'm at best an average skier, that I'm not a young man anymore. I had to tell myself that if I broke my legs, it would be very painful and that I wouldn't play tennis this summer. I told myself those things. I have one body. It's not the best body in the world, but it's the only one I have. And so I speak truth to my body to protect it and care for it. Well, verse 25, we are one body. It may not be the best body in the world, but it's the only one we have. So let's speak truth to one another. Let's tell each other the wonderful truths of the goodness of God. Let's not speak falsehood. Let's never encourage each other to do things that will not be good for us. Let's not speak the falsehood of the world. Let's not say things to each other that will suggest that in any way that to chase after another thing, anything other than Christ, will satisfy us. Let's not post things on Facebook that brag about the things we've done that will be no good for us or for anyone else to do. Why do we do that? Let's stop doing that. Put off falsehood and speak truth to each other because the things that go into my mind will change the way I live. Care for the body of Christ by speaking truth to each other. Then Paul says, verse 26, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Now again, I've never understood this verse until this week. I'm very excited about it. Until this week, I've always read this thinking that this was telling me that if I'm angry with you, I should get it sorted before I go to bed at night. Now, that's a good thing to do, but I'm not sure that's the point at all. He wouldn't just suddenly start saying that. This is a quote from Psalm 4. Now, turn with me to Psalm 4. Keep your service order in in Ephesians 4 and turn with me to Psalm 4 and we'll see what's really going on in the psalm and see how it fits perfectly with Ephesians. It's page 544. Page 544 in Psalm 4. And the quote that we just read comes from Psalm 4 and verse 4. So there it is, Psalm 4, verse 4, page 544. There's lots of fours in that. In your anger do not sin. There's our quote. Now look back to the second half of verse 2. How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? That's exactly what Paul has been talking about in Ephesians chapter 4. Don't look, after, don't look to other things to satisfy you. Don't look to false gods. All these other things that the world are telling you is where, where life is all about. And he's saying in Psalm 4, if you chase after other things, if you live as pagans do, if you look to other things to satisfy you other than the Lord, then at the end of the day, you're going to get angry because it isn't going to work. 
You're going to be angry and frustrated. You're going to lay on your bed and think, I just don't like the world. I'm really angry with the world. And in your anger, you'll begin to blame other people and blame your circumstances. And you might even blame your God that things haven't worked out as you wanted. You're not satisfied. And so Psalm 4 verse 4, in your anger, do not sin. When you are on your, in, on your beds at the end of the day, search your hearts and be silent. Before closing your eyes to go to sleep at night, close your eyes in prayer. Search your heart. And if you've become angry because the world hasn't delivered and you haven't got all that you wanted, repent. At the end of the day, ask God's forgiveness that you haven't put him first and made him your everything. That's the point of the psalm, isn't it? Isn't it brilliant? And that, of course, is exactly the point of Ephesians chapter 4. Come back with me to that now, page 1176. And it fits perfectly, obviously, with the rest of what we've been seeing. Chapter 4, verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. By ending the day repenting and turning back to God, you don't give the devil a foothold. You say, I'm going to put off all this frustration and anger with the world because I've been chasing after the wrong things today and I'm going to put myself back saying God is the most important. He's the one where I'll find satisfaction. He's the one I'm going to live for. Now look, we could do this with the whole thing. I only thought of this while I was sitting down. I'll try and do this now. Verse 28, I think, works like this. Um, Don't steal any longer. Don't, Don't use your hands for selfish gain. Use your hands for others. What's the point of that? Well, again, you see, the world is telling me to use my hands, not necessarily to steal, but for me. You work for yourself, then you're stealing from God and from others. Don't do that anymore. Work for the good of others. My time has gone. I I don't have time to go through uh, this list step by step. Uh, You can do that in your small groups. Meet in your small groups and spend most of your time going through this list and thinking, what must I put off? What must I put on? How can I get my mind straight so that I can live properly. But as I close, let me show you two big things in these verses. The first is that this is all about being other person focused. It's all about being focused on the body of Christ, on everyone else. So I'm looking out at all of you. You can all look over there and look at all of them. You can look down there. You can look out on everybody and say, this is all about everyone else, not about me. So we've seen in verse 25, we're to speak the truth into others' lives, about other person focused. I'm not going to speak falsehood. I'm not going to talk about all the things that I think are satisfying me, because that won't do them any good. I'm certainly not going to tell other people to try things that they shouldn't do to satisfy them. I'm going to speak truth. In verse 28, Paul says, do something useful with your hands. And the reason he gives at the end of verse 28 is so that you have something to share with those in need. I'm going to use my hand for you. Look out for others. Do things for others. We see the same in verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. You see what he's saying? Whether you're speaking or whether you're doing Do things for the good and benefit and building up of others. That's what this section is really all about. 
This is a list of things that will either destroy the church family or will build it up. Verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice because those things destroy the church family. Rather, verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. See, he is saying live in, in ways that, are, that, that kind of line up with God's master plan. Act in ways that build up God's new community and creates a loving church family. I'm out for you, you're out for me. We're not self-centered, we're out for each other. That builds us up. So first, this whole section is about being other person focused. And second, as we close, to do this, we need to be motivated by the cross of Jesus Christ. Again, verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See, it is the cross that will motivate us to live this way. Jesus was, of course, always looking out for others. We see that right through his life, but we see it supremely at the cross. Jesus loved us even though we didn't deserve it. Loved us enough to die for us. He's for you. He's for you. Jesus forgave us even though we didn't deserve it. We kept ignoring him. We keep ignoring him and he forgives you. He's for you. So look to Jesus and the cross and that will be the motivation that you and I need to be for others, to love them, to forgive them, even when they blow it. It's very easy to talk about the sort of church we want to be. Living it is much harder. So will you pray Ephesians chapter three, verses 14 to 19 and ask the Holy Spirit to give us all we need to live this out would you read God's word daily to have your mind renewed? Because if you're, we're going to live it, it starts upstairs. And then motivated by the cross of Jesus Christ, let's put off the way unbelievers live and put on the new self, a way of living that will build up God's people so that together we might become more like God. Together we might become a loving community of believers that really fits in perfectly with God's master plan. Let's pray together. Our Father, we acknowledge before you that church is easy to describe and it's not quite so easy in practice. We confess to you that... Um, we like the idea of community more than the experience of community because living community means we've got to look out for others and not look out for ourselves. But tonight we also know that to live the way you want us to live is always the best for us. And so we ask you to do this mighty power that Paul prays about for the Ephesians in us as a church family that the Holy Spirit may deeply, deeply dwell in our hearts and that you would show us the remarkable love of the Lord Jesus, that we would be overwhelmed and our hearts melted by that love.
uh, that we may begin to be changed and begin more and more to live this sort of life. And we pray it for your praise and glory and for the good of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.